today's episode of This Much We Know. I'm Murphy Hopkins Hubbard and I'm joined today by my co-host Simon Pickering. This Much We Know is a podcast all about building social enterprises. We hope to share with you the good, the bad, the ugly and all of our learnings and failures on developing impactful social enterprise providing employment and training for those in need. We will be sharing with you a range of challenges and how to overcome them. We're joined in each episode by a guest social entrepreneur sharing their stories, successes and most importantly their favourite facepalm moments. Today we have managed to convince the brilliant Alistair Jackson, CEO of Recycling Lives and multi-award winner to join us on the show. Now in the spirit of sharing our facepalm moments, this is actually the second recording he's participated in as we may have misplaced the original. So a huge welcome to Alistair. Recycling Lives, the charity and social enterprise, came out of Recycling Lives, the business. So the business came long before the charity and social enterprise and wasn't actually called Recycling Lives. It was a recycling company in Preston in Lancashire, scrap metal dealer, family business, 40-odd years old now. But never really had any thoughts of social enterprise or charity. It all came out because we were at a board meeting in 2006, I think, We were at a stage in the growth of the business where we were a medium-sized recycler, and the next step was to become a major player, top-tier recycler. And to do that, the next stage was to buy a big piece of kit called a fragmentizer. I won't go into the details of it, but it, it was a massive investment to do that. That was the logical business choice at the time. Let's buy this fragmentizer and spend a lot of money on the fragmentizer, and that will take us to the next level, put us at the top tier, compete with the big boys, grow the business from small to medium business to a big business. And most of us around the board table wanted to do that, me included. One of the directors and and co-founders, Steve, had this mission that he wanted to start a homeless charity, which if you think about it is insane. So what do scrap metal dealers from Preston know about? A, charity, the answer, nothing. B, homelessness, nothing. C, social enterprise, nothing. And D, we didn't have a building to do it in or anyone to run it. But After a few more board meetings and lots of conversations backwards and forwards, we ended up deciding we were going to open a charity, build a homeless centre from scratch and start the Recycling Lives charity. From that, fast forward a few years, we started the social enterprise. The reason for that really was because we wanted the charity to become self-sufficient and self-funding, so not rely on handouts from the business every year. Because if you think about it, it's brilliant to have massive support for a business. But what happens if there's a bad year in the business? You can't say to the people in the charity, sorry, we can't help you this year because the business has got no money. So from that, the social enterprise was born a few years afterwards out of necessity. And so from that mad idea of we wanted to give something back, Recycling Lives, the charity and social enterprise has grown and gone from this tiny little acorn of an idea to something that's turned into this monster that we are now albeit quite a small monster, but it's a monster anyway. And interestingly, the business, the business that we set it up has eventually, a few years later, got that fragmentizer and grown and grown and grown and now employs hundreds of people across the country and turns over God knows how many. I think it's, it's into the hundreds of millions now a year, but because of the social impact that it wanted to deliver. So there was a clever idea behind it. It was help people. And by helping people, people want to work with us as a business. So it became this kind of virtuous circle that we created. So help more people, helps the business to grow. Business grows, we can help even more people, and then we'll, and it kept going. It's a weird way of doing it. It's an unusual way of doing it, but we came at it from the business end backwards, whereas most people come to the charity end and then set up that way. So we, we, we did it in a potty way. I think that's what makes you so interesting, though, actually, 
because there are so few that do it that way around, actually, that come from from commercial business into social enterprise. The path is usually the other way, isn't it? For me, I still remember that board meeting. It was a stupid idea. I couldn't believe what I was hearing. And now here I am, 15 years later, running the whole bloody thing. And biggest advocate you can get for everything that we do. But it just didn't make any sense to me. But it's the best thing we ever did. I love the story. I think it's brilliant. Um, it's not, you know, it's against the grain. But also when you do see people coming from that commercial background, coming in, they haven't got that understanding of that they don't know the social sector. Whereas you're quite open to say, you know, we had no idea about it. And I think that probably was really on your side, that willingness to, to know that you don't know, <laughs> almost. That's right. We learned as we went along. And I, and I think that was a benefit to us. We didn't come in with preconceptions of, of how it needed to work. And don't take this the wrong way, anyone listening from the charity sector, but we originally started talking to people in the charity sector when we set up the charity. And we soon thought, this is not going to work for us. It's just not going to work. We need to do it our way. And so it, it didn't work, the traditional method. And we kind of ripped up the rule book a little bit and did it slightly differently. That's not to say that's the way to do it. And there's nothing wrong with the way most people do it. It just wouldn't work for us. So, yeah, kind of unique, but makes it more fun, doesn't it, being unique? Definitely. This was a new area for you going into it. So when, when you were those early days, you know, after the first couple of board meetings, on a scale of one to 10, how confident were you? Minus 10, minus 10. Not confident at all. I didn't see why we would want to, a business would want to complicate things by working with homeless people. I, I just didn't understand why we would want to complicate it, which is embarrassing now. I kind of class myself as a bit of a convert because it, I wasn't a bad person by any stretch of the imagination. I was a typical read the papers, believe what's in the papers, that must be right kind of thing. If you're a homeless person, you've done something wrong to deserve to be homeless, which is a ridiculous position to think of. But that, that's a position that many, many people have, isn't it? Just by not being educated. And so I wasn't anti anything like that. I just didn't see the logic of doing it. I would suggest when we started the charity, one out of 10. By the time we got to starting the social enterprise, I was bought into it big time. Was I sure we could make the social enterprise work? No, no, not at all. Because the way we did it, again, is a pretty strange way of doing it. We were lucky in one way in that in the social enterprise, our main income generator is through recycling, but we do it in prisons. As a social enterprise, we are in normal times the biggest recycler of televisions in the whole country. But isn't anybody bigger than us, which is a mad thing to think about. And all of that work's done in prisons, every single bit of it. So... The challenge for us was taking something that we knew worked on the outside and making it work in a prison. And at no point did we think we're going to scale this up to be able to pay all the bills for everything for the charity and the social enterprise. It was literally the first thing we did was set it up in the business to see if we could help a few people on the back of the fact we'd started the homeless thing. And we've done some work with prisoners because the local prison's an open prison, which means people can come in and out to a certain extent. So we were lucky in that we had the business backing that initial step to, to say, well, actually, we can make some mistakes and it doesn't matter. We're not going to close. So not many social enterprises have that luxury of go out, see if it can work, work it out and then refine it with a business backing it. We were very, very lucky because of that. So in the early days, we made loads of mistakes. We didn't understand how prisons needed to work. The prisons didn't understand how we needed to work. But we had a brilliant prison, a brilliant prison governor, great relationship. And we're able to make those mistakes knowing that we would make them at each end and then grow from there. And then once we got that right, and that took us two years to get right, then we flicked it into the social enterprise and grew it. 
So by the time we started the social enterprise, confident, but still only three or four out of 10, which doesn't sound very confident, but it's a lot more confident than minus 10. <laughs> Brilliant. And then on the social enterprise side, is there a one moment or numerous moments where you're like flipping it, this is actually going to work? It's mad. You know, we can't quite believe it, but we've reached a point where this is going to work. Have you ever reached that point? Yes. It was the point when we looked at the bills and said, well, actually, we're paying all these by ourselves. We don't need any money from the business. And actually, we've made that much income. We're paying for bills in other parts of the social enterprise that need propping up. We run Fair Share for Lancashire and Cumbria as part of our social enterprise. And that's not an income generating thing. That's a thing that we do because it's the right thing to do. That has a business model that if we can break it even, we're really happy. But generally, it doesn't. So we, we got to the point in the, with the prison work that it was propping up the Fair Share work. So that was the point you think, yeah, we've got this right. At that point, we'd gone from the one prison with six blokes working in a corner of a laundry trial type thing to 10 prisons, 100,000 televisions a month, all of British gases, gas meters, all of British telecoms, wireless hubs, computers, building skips. You think we've got this right. We know what we're doing. It's more important than the, the, the money and the social enterprise side of things. That's just purely there to enable us to do the nice stuff, i.e., get the food out to people, get homeless people into accommodation and jobs, get people in prison, into out of prison, make sure they don't reoffend, get them into jobs and get them back into independent living. So when all of that was clicking, and I would say that took us three or four years to achieve, then that was the point you think, yeah, we're all right. Doesn't make it easy, but that was the point where I thought, yeah, we're doing okay. No, I think that's why I sort of changed that uh, question at the end to say, have you ever felt that? Because actually when you talk to some social enterprises, they're like, we'll let you know when we reach that point because actually it's hard work it's day-to-day you know you really do have to work through a lot of stuff to get to make it work it's an old adage but it's like a swan isn't it along the top of it it looks as graceful as ever and and people look at what we do and think this is miraculous how wonderful it is and and the work that goes underneath with the flappy legs to get that swan to go along gracefully it's non-stop it's like anything in life you never you never stop learning you never get to the point where you think we've we've sussed this because we haven't, have we? Let's face it. I definitely don't have the swan at the top. <laughs> we pretend we've got a swan, but then we're most of the time we're diving to find the swan's legs. Yeah, mine's like a goose attempting to take off, but but failing. <laughs> um, so challenges. You talked about a few things. One of which, sort of being seeing yourself as being converted to someone who you know wasn't previously aware of the issues around homelessness or the realities that people might face. Um, and also you're, you know, building relationships with um, people that worked inside the prison and the governor. What's been the biggest challenge for you um, personally in this sort of developing a social enterprise and moving into the homelessness space? So the easy answer is COVID has, has literally destroyed all of our income. It's just gone. of the turnover of our social enterprise and the charity comes out of that recycling. And and that's £1.2 million a year is coming through that recycling. And at the start of lockdown, the prisons, quite rightly, shut. So you go from £1.2 million to nothing overnight. Clearly, we're not getting £1.2 million every month, but £100,000 a month to nothing. We're never going to replace all of that money, but how do we replace some of it money to keep going? So learning how to work the grant system, the, the donations, bids. We've reopened the community workshop. So we've actually gone backwards. We've taken what was in the community and put it into a prison and we've taken it out of the prison and put it back in the community again so that we can continue to get some income, learned how to get grants, 
learn how to ask people for money. And we've never done it. We've never, ever said, listen, this is what we do. Fund us. And people, bizarrely, most people are saying yes. And they're backing it up. So we've learned that kind of thing. So COVID's been really, really difficult. But everyone's going to say that. Other than that, it was scaling what we did. So to go from one to two prisons or one to two sites, it's not complicated. It's not hard. But for go from one to two to three to four to ten in different parts of the country and then learning to work with men and women that are on the other side of the country that you need our help when we're based in Preston and, and, and on all of that kind of stuff. So the scaling was the biggest challenge and the most interesting challenge. But if it wasn't for COVID, we'd be scaling again. We're ready to go from 10 to 20 to 30 now, or we were ready, but we'll have to dial that back. But that was a massive challenge. And when you talk about the scaling side, do the challenges mostly lie in the sort of business side, you know, the operations, or is it around the social impact? You know, how do you make sure that the people that you're working with are being worked with in the way that you'd originally intended? Both. I think actually the business side is a little bit easier especially for us, because everybody that we've employed at the start had an operational business background. I was lucky. I was operations director of the business, so I took all my <laughs> took my good operations teams and right, come here, you're working on this. So that scalability side on the business was hard, but we knew what we had to do. You're right, the scalability on the impact on people was harder because I'm sure it resonates with everybody. If you've got four or five or six people in one location, it's difficult, but it's doable. When you've got 250 people in 10 different locations, some are in prison, some are out of prison, and you've got to keep track of them and keep hold of them and make sure they're doing the right thing and we're doing the right thing by them. And you're traveling some days, some days you're not traveling. That was definitely harder. Local to Preston, we had the contacts that we needed to get people into jobs. We had the contacts that we needed to get people into accommodation. When you go to Doncaster, we didn't have them. Uh, When we went down to Derbyshire, we didn't have them. So building those up, Definitely the hardest and making sure that we gave the same value to somebody who was in the north of England, somewhere in Hull, as we could give to someone who was in our residential program. That was a very difficult challenge and was always key. We never wanted to grow and dilute the offer. Hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. In that journey from from that first board meeting where you thought everyone had gone absolutely mad through to sort of where you are now, maybe pre-COVID, I'll, I'll cut you some slack on that. Was there somebody or a particular conversation that you would reference and say, yeah, that was a really that really helped us to set the direction and the course that we've gone in? I think so. I mean, strangely, or maybe not strangely, actually, if you think about it, in, in the early days, people were wondering what the blag was. What were we blagging? Why, why did a recycling company want to get into this? What was the catch? There had to be some dodgy reason that a group of scrap metal people wanted to do this. There wasn't. There never was. So trying to overcome that, everybody was putting barriers in our way, saying, no, you're not going to do that. You're not going to do that. And then, and similarly with the prisons, even went there, it was like, no, you're going to fail. You're absolutely going to fail. The governor of Kirkham Prison, a fellow called Graham Beck, really good guy. We built up a good rapport with him, a good relationship with him, and he's a really wise, clever guy. And I remember sitting with him once, two or three years into what we were doing. And we were just talking about how far we'd come. And we hadn't come that far at that point. And he said something along the lines of that we were the most adaptable organisation he'd ever come across in his whole career. He couldn't believe how we adapted. Every time somebody put something in front of us, we adapted something that made it work. 
we'd never thought of it like that. We just thought this is just normal. This is just what we do. This is how recycling lives works. And for somebody like that, who I held in such, and still do hold in such esteem to say that we were that flexible, that energetic, that adaptable, thought, yeah, we're doing something right. If this guy's telling us we're good, then we must be doing something right. And then you get the awards and all of that fluff that comes with it and the nice things that people say about you. But it didn't happen in the early days. People were very negative in the early days and wondering what the catch was. Whereas now we've got the Queen's Awards and we've got this award and that award and whatever else. And, it, and, it, and it's nice. It's not what we do it for, but we have that, hopefully, a, a good reputation where people now ask us for advice, which is bizarre how we've got from that point to this point. I really don't know. Yeah, it's funny. The award thing is funny, isn't it? Because at the point where you want the awards is when it's really hard at the beginning, isn't it? Because that really helps you to to go to that, you know, increase customers and go to that next level. Uh, but it doesn't come. It only comes after you've got over that big hump, or that big hurdle. And then you suddenly get the awards and you're really busy and the whole... It becomes embarrassing, actually, awards, I think. Because it gets to the point where people go, oh, here's another one, here's another one. And you're like, I don't want any more. Just leave us alone. Give them to somebody else. Because you're absolutely right. You need the awards at the beginning. The only reason we ever entered any awards is to get recognition so we could do something else. So the Queen's Award's lovely, but all it does is give you recognition. People who are, oh, they've got a Queen's Award, we'll work with them. It's the same with every single award. They're about enabling you to grow, I think. And yeah, it gets to the point where, it, I, I, please don't stop giving us awards, but they get embarrassing. <laughs> I love it. So now we've changed it. We, we, we don't enter as an organisation. We enter people in our team that wouldn't otherwise get any um, kudos. So I, I think it's much better for people who, who work hard at, at really at the roots level to win awards rather than me and the, uh, the social enterprise winning awards. It's better for them. Yeah. On that note, is there, is there somebody within the enterprise that you would sort of say, if this all ended tomorrow, what that person's achieved or what they've gone on to do, I would, um, yeah, I'd be happy to go out now on that, on that note. If it all ended tomorrow, let's hope it doesn't end tomorrow. Number one, I really don't want it to end tomorrow. It's thousands of people that we've we've worked with now, thousands and thousands and thousands because of all the wide variety of stuff that we do. It's not strictly homeless, but the one person that I think your life has changed beyond recognition is a lady called Yvonne. She wasn't homeless, but she came to us through one of our programs within the criminal justice sector. So she came through probation. But effectively, she'd been in and out of prison in her life for nothing massive. She wasn't a master criminal, but bits of this, bits of that, in and out, in and out, in and out. She came to us as the business through this probation program where people got 16 weeks work experience, paid, doing a real job. And then if they were good at the end of it, we keep a kind of thing. So a really good model, actually. Try before you buy, get somebody some really good work experience. The worst thing they're going to get is 16 weeks of work. And a good reference, the best is they're going to get a job. Yvonne got a job and she, she started at entry level, the least confident person I've ever met. No confidence in herself whatsoever, but really good at her job. Fast forward a couple of years, we, the prison program was moving and we made the decision to open our first female prison workshop. We'd, we'd only been in male prisons before that. And we talked to the prison, we talked internally, and we made the decision we had to have a female manager for the prison in that workshop. We just couldn't see how a male manager would work well with the girls inside. And we wanted to smash down another barrier. We wanted to get an ex-offender back into a prison. We'd never managed to get an ex-offender to run a prison for us. So again, another good governor, worked with the governor, spoke to Yvonne, 
do you want to do this? Do you think you can do it? She absolutely thought she couldn't. I knew that she could. We went through the vetting process. She got knocked back because she had the criminal record. She'd actually been in the prison. She'd lived in the prison that we were putting the workshop in. So it was basically taking someone who used to be locked up in the prison and putting them back, but managing a workshop. But we kept at it and we got her in and the poor woman was terrified. The first day I remember she going in, she was terrified because she was walking along past people that used to lock her up. And she now had keys to the prison that she used to be locked up in. Can you, can you imagine that change? And she was terrified. But she is such a strong woman, such an amazing person. She has managed to take that history that she had and throw it away and become a role model for the women that she's worked with in the three or four years since. And she's not solely responsible because there's a whole team, but she's so responsible for the success of so many women coming out of that workshop who look at her and go, we used to live here and you've done this and that and that and that and that. And now you're managing this and you've won this award. She's, she's a Butler Trust Awards winner, which is a big awards in, in the criminal justice sector. And I would be very surprised that there's many people of a criminal background who've won that. There will be some. But she once complained to me. She said, you, you said I was going to be manager. And I said, you are. You are manager. What you want about? She said, I'm manager, but I'm mother, sister, friend, drugs counsellor, mentor and coach, as well as manager. I'm everything. And what she's gone from that woman on probation with no confidence to being the woman who transforms the lives of people, says everything about recycling lives for me, everything. And now she's training other women to become the next Devon and the next Devon and next Devon. And there's so many girls who come out of that prison who owe their independence to her, as well as the rest of the team. That would be the thing that stuck with me forever, I think. What an amazing story. Um, I don't know if, if Simon, you agree, and hopefully our listeners will too. The way that you talk about the social impact that you've made, particularly in that story, the sort of animated excitement in your voice, compared to when you're talking about the business from someone with a business background, <laughs> it is so nice and warming to hear. You know, it always comes back to this piece of individuals who are having their lives changed and also changing lives. Um, it's a really exciting space to be in. Yeah, lovely. Yeah, of course it is. I mean, what's better, counting numbers of tellies or number of cars or scrap metal or counting the number of people that you've helped? And it's not even counting, the, it's hearing the stories of the number of people we've helped. So to go back to Yvonne, their kids had that offending background. They're not offending anymore. They've moved on, they've, they've seen. And, and then we, everybody knows it in our set, that when people succeed and then they come back to you saying, I'm, I'm getting married or, or this is my son, this is my daughter, it wasn't been for you. Geez, anyone who doesn't think that's a good job, I don't know what's up with them. It's hard, but when it goes right, there's no better job in the world, I don't think. We forget on a day-to-day -day basis, don't we, that when you're struggling working out how you're going to get the tellies from here to there or how you're going to get the food out or what problem has been caused by one of the lads in the residential, we've always got to have in the back of the mind that there's a goal at the end of it that means this is worth it. And I'm dead fortunate that all of our team get it, all of them. They understand why it is, and without that, it wouldn't work. Mm. Well, I feel we've been... Um... Far too complimentary about all your success and the impact that you've made. So this is Simon and my favourite question that we like to ask everyone who comes on the show. Um, and it's, what's your best facepalm moment? Something you've done and you've, you know, sort of shot yourself in the foot or you feel so embarrassed you have to put your face in your palm. <laughs> so I don't tend to get embarrassed. I don't tend to have facepalm moments, but clearly these things happen. I was thinking about this the other day when I was thinking, well, what is the answer to that question? And I think my biggest 
facepalm moment was knocking, not me personally, I have to point out, one of our wagons took out the gate to the prison, um, <laughs> which you can imagine didn't go well. Um, knocking the gate down to a prison. We've taken articulated lorries day after day after day. So how on earth he did it, we, we, to this day, we don't know. But yeah, we, we took out the whole gate to a prison. You can imagine that phone call. Alistair, we're trying to keep people in and you're knocking your gate down to let them out. There's nothing you can really say to that, is there? Paperwork must be a nightmare. <laughs> yeah, that, that, was, that was when our, our best relationship skills were required. I think you might have moved into the top spot for facepalm moments now. <laughs> It's been a tight corner, but you might have just clinched another award, Alistair. Sorry, no, no I can't believe anyone else has knocked the gate down to prison. I, that, that... I think you've definitely scored some street cred points for that one, actually. Don't tell anybody, we've done it three times. <laughs> That's a pretty serious face palmer, I would suggest. I guess bringing it in to a more sort of serious point, I thought every prison in the country has no gates left on it. If you could go back and tell yourself anything, what, what, would, you, what would you go for? You know, would you go back and say, don't, whatever you do, stick to your job in the recycling company and don't get involved <laughs> in this? Or, yeah, what would you, what would you say? I have this thing that worrying is pointless. Uh, and that's what I'd tell a younger me. I know it's not specific to social enterprise or anything like that, but there is absolutely no point worrying because it doesn't help. Uh, and I know some people can't help worrying and, and, Clearly, that, that I'm not saying that no one should worry, but if you can get it in your head that worrying doesn't help you, that is the best lesson I learned. I used to worry about when the next thing was happening. And it's control the controllables and don't worry about the stuff you can't control and get on with it. That's the biggest lesson I learned. Lying awake all night is not going to change it. So don't worry, work hard and it'll be okay. That's what I would tell myself. No, I think it's really, it's, no, it's really good. And what's really good, what I really like, we've had, we've had quite a range of different people on the podcast from you know from startup first year early days you know and we've asked some of these questions like we're not quite sure yet because we haven't got that far down the track but I really like some of the way you you being further along that track it's just made it a much more interesting podcast this episode because actually it's yeah there's so much more um to learn and, and for you to share with us so yeah that's been really good um a very good re- response there I think Alistair Top thank marks. you thank you yeah, it's Doing nice all right so far. Have a, have a really honest, honest account of it as well. You know, the, the sort of point of this podcast is to share stories and to humanise experiences. So anyone going into this or having experienced it can relate, um, you know, feel that sort of peer network that perhaps they haven't been able to access, you know, share ideas, um, but also know that, you know, we all make mistakes and it's about sharing those mistakes where we're going to learn from it. Thanks to Alistair for joining us today on This Much We Know. In our next episode, we'll be joined by Lucy Findlay, MBE, social entrepreneur and founder of The Social Enterprise Mark. So please subscribe to the podcast and follow us on Twitter at thismuch underscore we know. Thanks to Neil Whiteside at Freedom One for production. Until next time, from Murphy and me, thank you for listening and goodbye.